You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Fish Crime. <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. Today on the show, we're going to revisit a topic from just two months ago when we talked about the film Seaspiracy. As our listeners may remember, last month we spoke to Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff about legislative prayer. And this month we have for you the second half of our interview with Teal. Dr. Phelps Bondaroff is the director of research for Oceans Asia, one of the organizations featured in the film. So we thought it would be a great opportunity to get his take on both the film itself and to get his response to some of our critiques of the film. And we also expanded in some interesting areas, I think. So here's the interview. It's always exciting to have the opportunity to follow up on something we've talked about before on the show. Especially since we talked about it so recently. <laughs> Great episode, too. So Thank on you. our last episode, we talked uh, about the recent Netflix documentary Seaspiracy. And Gary Stokes of Oceans Asia appeared in the film. And as luck might have it, our guest today, Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff, uh, happens to be director of research for Oceans Asia. Well, I wear lots of hats, so yeah, I'll switch out my, uh, my legislative prayer hat for my uh, my ocean going uh, pirate hat here so teal why don't you start by telling us in your words what oceans asia is all about yeah so oceans asia is a marine conservation group that is based out of hong kong and um, as, as you mentioned my colleague gary stokes and i founded the organization a couple of years ago and what we focus on is illegal fishing and other marine issues now, Asia is, of course, the largest continent in the world, and fisheries issues are huge, and wildlife crime issues are huge in Asia. So the whiteboard of things that we would like to be working on is is, is large. <laughs> but we've, we've been focusing heavily on illegal fishing and on plastic pollution. And this last year for the pandemic, um, I've been sort of kept incredibly busy um, on plastic pollution, mostly because uh, we broke the news story about uh, face masks becoming uh, beach plastic. And so have you seen any stories about masks on beaches, um, that we, we kind of broke that story, had a large report come out on that, exploring the, the plastic implications and the marine plastic implications of COVID. And um, that was keeping us very busy. And we have a, a report coming out very soon on porpoise conservation in Hong Kong. So we're looking at porpoise mortality. And um, I was just this afternoon meeting with one of my researchers. Um, we're looking at false medical claims around uh, shark cartilage. And uh, so that's an, an ongoing one. And I might actually connect you with him once we get that report out, because it's it's an interesting sort of combination of skepticism, people preying on people in vulnerable situations, destroying the planet at the same time and, and ripping off people for money. So it's that was a, a fascinating topic and top of my mind right now. But we've been mostly focused on illegal fishing and uh, what I call fish crime. So, you know, in Seaspiracy and I guess last, sat, last weekend was the International Day to Fight Illegal or IUU Fishing. And... I often try to avoid talking about illegal fishing and talking about fish crime in general, because one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is crime pervades every stage of the fishery supply chain. It's not just the act of fishing illegally. So when there's people who are stealing fish from the water or poaching, they're not just, it's not just them. There's, there's crime at every step. So there's people who are forging ships documents, there's forged permits, there's spoofed AIS transponders and tracking devices, there's individuals being enslaved on vessels, there's illegal transshipment, there's uh, people lying about fish, there's you know uh, smuggling and fish laundering operations, all the money has to be laundered and hidden. And if you think that the, uh, the crime stops when the fish reaches your plate, you would be wrong. There was even a case of bribery and ex uh, bribery in the uh, Schrevening's annual herring tasting competition in the <laughs> Netherlands a few years ago. Um, <laughs> so you've got crime at every stage of the fishery supply chain. So I try to call it fish crime because it captures the sort of wild, a form of wildlife crime that's based on the oceans. Um, and we've been looking at that in, in a wide range of, of areas. Uh, my main focus for the past year and a half has been sea cucumbers. And I've been looking at sea cucumber crime 
and I, I spent too long in the last two weeks working on a grant to investigate um, sea cucumber crime in India and Sri Lanka, which is a global hotspot. Um, and we're just setting up a project to look at sea cucumber crime in Mexico. For those of you who don't know, because you might be prairie folks, uh, sea cucumber is basically, they're the earthworms of the sea. They're kind of a, uh, they're in the same family as sort of a sea star. They're an echinoderm. They're like a little tube that uh, lives at the bottom of the ocean. It eats stuff. It, it poops stuff out. They're really important for ecosystems. Um, and I think if you're if you're looking for a moment of, of, of meditative uh, reflection, like go on YouTube and Google uh, sea cucumber pooping, and you can watch <laughs> these these amazing echinoderms in action. It's 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 surprisingly meditative. They're um, like those little toys that you got as a kid with the the tube of water that you can play yeah. with. <laughs> exactly. Oh, totally right. Uh, and they're very cool. Um, I mean, not not to like do a hard hard uh, pivot, but uh, one of the listicles I'm currently working on is just sea cucumber butts. Um, and and there, there's a lot of stuff to say about them. Like, for example, the pearl fish lives in the anal cavity of certain species of sea cucumber. And um, sea cucumbers, most species are cool with that because they provide shelter and the pearl fish doesn't do much damage. Sometimes a pearl fish will, will nibble the gonads of the sea cucumber. They don't like that. And some species of sea cucumber have evolved um, anal teeth to keep uh, the, uh, the pearl fish away from their orifice. Um, which is quite fascinating. And if anyone also wants a name for a really good indie band, um, some sea cucumbers have what's called a transient anus, um, wherein they don't actually have an anus, but a hole on their body appears when they want to defecate and then it closes again and it appears in a random location. So there's, there's a lot of fun, interesting stuff about sea cucumbers, um, apart from the fact that there's a lot of wildlife crime, organized crime uh, that's heavily involved in their, in their trafficking. And for context, and just to bring it back to a serious note, um, the Yakuza in Japan, a few years back, made more money smuggling sea cucumbers than they did smuggling methamphetamines. So we're talking big business, we're talking organized wow. crime, we're talking international, transnational wildlife crime. Um, and it is, it is interesting to look at sea cucumbers, because very often we think of transnational organized crime as being drugs or people or weapons. Or with wildlife products, we think of um, like elephant tusks or rhinoceros horns. Shark fins has been something my colleague has worked on. That's what he was talking about in Seaspiracy. Um, but wildlife crime takes many many forms, uh, from caterpillar fungus in Mongolia to sea cucumbers to uh, colored spiders <laughs> in some tropical countries. There's there's a wide range. And it, well, I saw something on, uh, we were watching that new David Attenborough doc, The World in Color, and they were talking about those Cuban snail shells. Like the snails are now endangered because their shells are so cool. It's just, well, humans. Was it the blue parrots from like Madagascar, the movie that became either extinct or heavily endangered because people were trying to gather them for pets? Uh, the, the ones from Rio, I know, were, Rio, already, right. were already extirpated by the time that movie was made. <sighs> yeah, so this is the, the world we look at. And I guess to, to summarize my, my work with Oceans Asia is we have a research team that does good, you know, empirical research. Again, my, my principle is do good research, hit people about the head with it till they listen. Um, and we do it on a wide range of subjects. So like I said, we're doing porpoises, marine plastics, sea cucumbers, shark uh, claims on shark fins. Um, we have projects on seahorses. I'd like to launch a project on giant clams soon. Um, and, and there's a, one of the angles we're looking at is crime. And I think this, this is kind of relates to the conversation you folks were having in your last episode on, on Seaspiracy, which is, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that crime at sea is a serious problem, that illegal fishing is a huge problem, but also, and I think this is something that we kind of overlook, it's organized crime. And so I've been working for the past six years with a group of, a growing group of academics and, and professionals in, in this world to reconceptualize and reframe illegal fishing, not as an administrative crime, as like a whoopsie, I didn't mean to go over my quota, but as a form of transnational organized crime. And when you're successful at doing that, government priorities suddenly change. So, you know, administrative crime, like jaywalking, like, oh, we're going to ding you, we're going to slap you on the wrists, we're going to give you a fine, it's the cost of doing business, you've got $10 million worth of fish in your hold, here's a $50,000 fine. Right, the fines that they're assessed will never be punitive enough to do anything about exactly. it. Exactly. Compared to this is organized crime, we're going to take your boat. Um, Susi, the former minister of fisheries in Indonesia, was blowing them up and making <laughs> reefs, um, and we're going to treat this seriously, and we're going to hunt down beneficial owners, and we're going to go after your money. Um, and so that's kind of the angle that we've been I've been pushing for the last few years in, in my professional work. And Oceans Asia has been taking that kind of the law enforcement angle, principally because people don't care as much about fish. Um, it's, it's really hard to appreciate 
you know, the impact that we're having on the oceans because you can't see it, right? So, you know, if you show someone a forest that's been clear cut, it's clear cut, it's obviously been clear cut, right? There's nothing there. There's a couple of lonely looking orangutans. Um, however, if you look at an ocean that's health unhealthy, you can't tell the difference unless you're a diver or there's a, you know, a layer of plastic or oil on top. And so it's really hard for people to understand this. And we also, it's harder for people to connect with some of our sea creatures. So yeah, dolphins and sharks, super cool, absolutely adorable. There's pink dolphins in Hong Kong we got to hang out with, which is, they're pretty amazing. They're like the Hello Kitty of dolphins. It's, it's, it's wild. Um, but then, you know, a sea cucumber, it's really hard to create, you know, some kind of evocative relationship with that. They're not charismatic in the same way. Um, All I can think of is that uh, campaign from PETA, the sea kittens. <laughs> they were trying to get people to think of fish as sea kittens so that we would have more empathy for them. Like, yeah. okay, I get where you're going, but no. <laughs> well, seals are basically the, 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 the dogs of the sea. And, you know, oh, and seals orcas are adorable, are for sure. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you can't sell a baby seal, you are, you should not be doing your job, right? But if you're trying to convince someone to save krill, like one of my, my passions for marine conservation is krill. Krill are tiny. There's 600 trillion of them, the T, um, and they are never described as individuals. They're described as swarms. They're described mm. as whale food. They're the tiny little, you know, uh, crustaceans that whales eat. And yeah, Bill and Will the krill show up in happy feet. But apart from that, they don't get a lot of meat. <laughs> and if you... You, we need to protect them. And if we protect krill, we can protect all the species that feed on them from whales to dolphins to crab-eating seal, crab-eater seals to seabirds. There are keystone species in Antarctica, but it's really hard to sell them because they're just a swarm, a, a faceless swarm, right? Um, and so it's it's one of the challenges that you get with the conservation world is, is trying to deal with these kind of um, challenging species. And so instead of evoking the emotional or the moral argument, you invoke the law and order argument. We don't care if the animal's cute. Um, we just, what you're doing is illegal. And this came up a lot with whaling, um, where um, and I'll, I'll cycle into Sea Shepherd, because I know you guys were talking about that in the last um, a session. The Sea Shepherd changed its rhetoric in Antarctica from it's wrong it's wrong to kill whales to it's illegal to kill whales. And so then they're, they're, they're basically circumventing the legal argument entirely. Um, because in Japan, it wasn't perceived as being wrong. Whales were seen as a fish, they're seen as food, part of food security and part of a broader government policy. So if you make a moral argument in that context, it's going to fall on, on, it's going to fall flat because it's just, it's not, that's not their perception of the thing. But if you make a legal argument and you say, this is illegal, you have a different uh, form of engagement and you're actually able to engage in, in forms of law enforcement from a, a non-state actor approach. So obviously there are a number of things that are driving this fish crime. What do you see as the, the major drivers of these illegal activities? You know, why, why are people interested in sea cucumbers, for example? Greed and capitalism. Capitalism. Oh. Just pause there for the riff. Doing our job for us. <laughs> I mean, there's push and pull factors, but greed is a huge one, right? And what you'll actually see in, for example, um, Mexico is the cartels have transferred their operations from drug smuggling. A percentage of them has been transferred to wildlife trafficking. Why? because it's easier, there's more money to be made, and the punishments are less severe. So for example, um, when I was in uh, Singapore doing an investigation a few years ago, we found a single fish maw, swim bladder, that's the part of the fish that allows it to go up and down in the water column. It was being sold for $96,000, which is for Singapore dollars comparable to the Canadian dollar. Yeah, that's so that's what, for what purpose? Well, the, the fish maw in this case is sort of a luxury food item, and if you were spending $96,000 on less than 300 grams of fish, so we're not even talking a full kilogram of fish, you're most likely putting it on your wall as a, uh, a flex to capitalism, to conspicuous consumption, to whatever, um, for whatever reason. So it, that one we suspect came from a totoaba, which is a, a highly endangered fish from the, the Baja region of Mexico. But they have a, a swim bladder that looks nice. It's got two little tentacles coming off of it. it. It sits on the wall nicely. And when they get older, they kind of turn a red color. So this is kind of like the, the tulip craze, really. I don't know if folks are familiar with the tulip mm -hmm. bubble. Right, yeah. It's basically the tulip bubble with, with, the, with the fish species. And the problem with the totoaba is, well, there's multiple problems. But one of them is that in addition to people fishing illegally for this fish, they're also killing um, the vaquita. And, and the vaquita is uh, the smallest porpoise in the world, and it will be the next marine mammal to go extinct. 
There are, I think on last count, seven of them left. Um, there was an attempt to capture a breeding pair so they could try to breed them in captivity. And in so doing, they accidentally killed, I think, 20% of the population of this species. Um, so it, it, it's, it's screwed. And the reason it's screwed is not because people are fishing for it. It's because they're fishing illegally for totoaba and shrimp. And those, those totoaba are being smuggled by drug cartels. And so you can imagine a situation where you're smuggling drugs into Indonesia. By the way, don't smuggle drugs into Indonesia because when you show up at the airport, there's signs that say we have the death penalty for drug smuggling. Mm -hmm. So don't do it. But if you get caught with a suitcase full of fish bits, very few law enforcement officers will know what those are. They, the fines aren't going to be very high and you're certainly not going to get the death penalty and you might just get a slap on the wrist. They may not even know what they are. They may not even have fines at all because some mm -hmm. countries may not have legislation in place for that particular species, although those are CITES 1, so they, they should. And so it's a lot safer. And so this is why organ existing organized criminal syndicates are getting involved in wildlife trafficking. And on top of that, even if they weren't involved, by international definitions, if you have three people involved in an operation for a protracted period of time engaged in illegal activity, they're engaged in organized crime. Just because they're smuggling fish parts doesn't mean it's not organized crime. Right. And in my, my opinion is that we have to treat it as such so that we can effectively um, get the resources and police attention to actually combat it. This fish bladder anecdote reminds me of the uh, the pineapple craze in 17th century Europe, where monarchs were paying the equivalent of it was like eight or nine thousand dollars for a single pineapple. <laughs> we to just rent have, have it. Pineapple. Yeah. The rent. I know, Lauren. I love it. The rental of the pineapples was. I read about that, and it was just like you would just rent it out and take it on the town for the afternoon, but don't scratch it because it's you know. Like... <laughs> yeah, that that pineapple loses most of its value once it's off the lot. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> goodness yes oh I, I listened to a, i think a podcast on that and it was yeah it, it's similar i mean in a sense it's that conspicuous consumption um but unlike a pineapple where i assume there was there's lots of pineapples in the world we're talking about you know wildlife that's endangered and you get this really weird effect where people think oh the markets will take care of it they don't they're not going to take care of it because as that product becomes more and more rare the value goes up and yeah. so the totoaba is the second best swim bladder in the world. The most valuable swim bladder is the bohaba, or the yellow-lipped or gold coin fish, which is found in the South China Sea. It's commercially extinct. The last one that was found, a fisherman caught it, and he sold it for half a million dollars American and retired. Hmm. And, and so you have a situation where you caught, this is this species is you know commercially extinct. What are you doing? And here's the wild thing. Because it was commercially extinct, there was very little legislation on it because why would you bother making legislation to conserve a species that's extinct? So if you go out into the bush today in Manitoba and you take down a, a Sasquatch, <laughs> you have not broken any laws, as far as I know, unless Manitoba has weird laws on Sasquatch <laughs> poaching, um, because there isn't any legislation, because um, who would bother making Sasquatch conservation legislation? Um, and that's a problem you get when you have species that have already gone past the brink of extinction. It's almost like the great auk example. I don't know if folks are familiar with the great auk, but there was the great auk was sort of the northern penguin, for lack of a better term. And it was extirpated, um, and I don't remember the date off the top of my head. Um, but a few years after it was extirpated, they found a new colony of great auks. And all of them were wiped out by museums trying to get a great auk for their collection. Yeah, mm. yeah. That market argument is is really important because it illustrates the perverse incentives that are at play when you try to allow a market to self-regulate like that. Yeah. And, and there's greed involved and, and there's also poverty too, right? Like, let's not yeah. forget, like one of the reasons why we're trying to frame this as organized crime is the fishers and the, the low level smugglers and poachers are not the people we want to arrest. We want to arrest the kingpins and the organizers. Um, and so disproportionately, it might be a poor fisher who is gleaning a few sea cucumbers to make a few bucks. Um, we want to get the people who are the middlemen who are buying them and, and then selling those on for huge profits. The fishers, for example, in like Sri Lanka will get 50 cents per sea cucumber and those will sell for hundreds of dollars in Hong Kong. So, you know, we don't, we want to be going after the, the high level organized criminals as opposed to the, um, the average fisher. And this, I maybe, maybe I'll pivot back to, to Seaspiracy <laughs> for a second, because I mean, that was kind of part of the, the conversation that I think you guys ended your, your conversation on, which was looking at like industrialized fishing compared to say artisanal or localized fishing. Um, there's still crime at the local level, and you, you do see these sort of, you know, middlemen coordinating the accumulation of, say, products and then shipping them off. But yeah, industrial fishing is is one of the larger issues as far as 
um, just the scale of its of its ability to destroy our oceans. On that last episode, we discussed the conservationist organization Sea Shepherd that uh, was featured in Sea Spiracy. I I personally came away from the film with uh, a pretty positive impression of the group, but some members of the panel were. Uh, well, I, I don't want to put words in anyone's <laughs> mouth, but uh, maybe uncomfortable uh, with Sea Shepherd's apparent, at least as portrayed in the um, in the film, uh, militancy. Now, as you have illustrated throughout this conversation, Teal, uh, you know, this is organized crime that we're dealing with. But I understand that you actually wrote your PhD thesis on Sea Shepherd and later worked with the organization to some degree. So what, what should we know about Sea Shepherd? Well, I'll, I'll also chuckle here because I also spent four months at sea on one of the boats doing my field work. So I think that puts me into a certain category as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I did my, so my, my PhD, as I mentioned earlier, my research as an academic looks at the strategic use of international law by non-state actors. So, so non-state actors like NGOs, activist organizations that are doing different things with international law. And the place to do those interesting things is on the high seas. Uh, principally because if one of you, for example, wanted to set up your own country, for example, and you did so in your apartment, you would probably run into problems. We're not talking about that episode of Family Guy. You know, you would run into some serious issues. Uh, if you tried to do so on a, a small gun placement platform off the coast of England, and you call it Sealand, you might step into a complicated international legal network of red tape and complexities and, or for example, if you were an LGBTQ uh, organization in Australia and you occupied a spit of land in the Coral Sea and declared uh, the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea and then declared war in Australia, you would be doing something that most activists couldn't do on, on land. They and have a that, really good flag though. It, oh, it, it's Pride Month. So I've got to talk about <laughs> the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Seas at some point. I'm working on a paper on them. It's fascinating. Uh, they also declared victory in that war, by the way. And it was <laughs> all part of a, a protracted battle to um, to legalize gay marriage in Australia, which was legal mm. for the longest time. And then it, it's it's a complicated process, but basically um, Emperor Dale, which I think was a missed opportunity, should have been Queen Dale. But anyways, that's another conversation. But Emperor Dale and his friends sailed out to this island and planted the rainbow flag and then declared war in Australia. Um, but anyways, that's, that's one of sort of the aspects of looking at groups using international law in interesting ways. Uh, one other example before I get to Sea Shepherd was uh, Women on Waves, which is an amazing organization that has abortion clinics on sailboats. And they oh, put these abortion clinics cool. on the high wow. seas. Oh, they are so cool. We may have to have a longer conversation about micronationalism and <laughs> stuff. Um, I love them. They're so fascinating. And they're basically basically abortion pirates uh, where they, 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 have, they have been doing fewer operations at sea because it's expensive and complicated, but they've been delivering abortion medication with drones from like Germany to Poland because Poland's being taken over by Catholic fascists. Oh boy, um, is it ever. They've been delivering like, abor they have an abortion robot that will like a drone that drives on the ground and then it, it gave out abortion medication in, in South Korea. Uh, they won a legal battle and a marine battle against the Portuguese Navy. Like, very cool stuff. So looking at groups that do things on the high seas, you can get away with things is not quite the right term, but you can, there's more flexibility around law on the high seas. And that's kind of the, the environment, the theater that Sea Shepherd operates in. So to give a bit of background on Sea Shepherd, they were founded in the 70s by Paul Watson. One of you kind of hit on the nose. He, he uh, was kicked out of Greenpeace for being a bit too uh, militant with respect to property damage. And, and the early days of Sea Shepherd were they were more sort of the, the, the pirate, the, the free-flown free days of the 70s. They were sinking pirate whaling vessels. So whaling vessels that were, were whaling outside of the uh, protections, not the right term, but the, the parameters of the International Whaling Commission, they were putting those on the bottom and, and sinking them. So, uh, like, that's one of the issues that I have. Isn't sinking a ship that is full of, like, fuel and other things, isn't that pretty bad for the oceans? This was the 70s. So, you know, it was back in the day when if someone wanted a free trip to Cuba, they would just jump on a plane and hijack it. Um, but there, there is, that is a question, right? So, you know, I, I sat down and interviewed the, the president of the International Whaling Commission as part of my research, and he was talking about how the International Whaling Commission is not happy with Sea Shepherd because of they rammed boats on the high seas and they, they you know, there was, there was sinkings in the past. Um, it's one of those sort of cost-benefit analysis that the organization runs. You know, for example, um, the the criticism is sometimes raised that like you know these are diesel sh these are ships with bunker fuel that are sailing around um isn't that have an environmental impact and, and yes and obviously like that's that's a concern but i guess i mean that's almost sort of the the two coke fallacy you know where you know you've got someone fighting for animal rights and they're wearing a leather belt i mean that's yeah they're not so consistent but you kind of maybe 
especially when you're operating the high seas, you need a boat, right? Um, but yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it as the David Suzuki fallacy: how he flies places. How can David mm -hmm. Suzuki fly anywhere? Yeah. yeah, fair enough. I mean, that, that's kind of the same example. But the, the so Sea Shepherd hasn't sunk boats more recently, um, but they have. So what I was looking at for my research was um, looking at their their work in Antarctica. So they were trying to stop Japanese whaling, and for for a long period of time, we're going down there and engaging in confrontational direct action, where they would basically try to block the Japanese from killing whales. And then they would also try to block the slipway of the factory vessel to prevent them from loading whales onto the factory vessel, effectively shutting down whaling. And over the years, Sea Shepherd got better and better at doing that. So that when I was down there in 2010-11 on the Bob Barker doing my field work, the, the Japanese got less than 20% of their quota that year because the, the, the Sea Shepherd fleet was able to interdict their whaling vessels, to occupy their vessels so they couldn't whale, and then ultimately to find their factory vessel and block them. So I think to, to, to answer the question of like, is sinking bad for the environment? Yes. And I think that's why um, the strategies changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But what's really interesting, this is kind of where the organizations changed over the years. So you've got this early kind of like cowboy days. And then when I was studying them, there was still engaging in what I ended up calling direct enforcement. So I don't know if you folks do a lot of like activist language, but direct action is activists actively trying to bring about the change they want to see in the world. Direct enforcement is a form of direct action where you're enforcing the law. So it's, it's not quite vigilantism insofar as that evokes a separate literature of legal cowboy stuff, um, <laughs> but you are effectively trying to enforce the law. And what Sea Shepherd's doing now on the West Coast of Africa is actually working with governments to enforce the law. So they've gone from direct enforcement to collaboration and cooperation with government officials. And so Sea Shepherd has the largest private Navy in the world. And that, that's something that a lot of Central African countries like Gabon and Sao Tome and Principe don't have. Like they have a larger Navy than many countries in West Africa. And so they're able to provide West African countries with a naval asset, with a crew and fuel, and they will actually patrol the waters of say Gabon or Sao Tome and Principe and provide that service for the country. And in exchange, the country basically has armed officers, naval officers on board their vessels, and they're able to arrest people. So they've kind of transitioned from early cowboy pirate days, sort of confrontational direct action in the Antarctic uh, Southern Ocean, to cooperating with governments as sort of almost one of one of the uh, Claude Berube, I think, called them a private military contractor. They're not really because they're not a mercenary organization, but they are engaging in, in a form of enforcement, but now they're working with governments. So it's really interesting to see that transition over the years. They've kind of come in, in different ways um, and they still do other things as well. So the organization isn't just looking at, but they aren't just working in, the, in direct enforcement in West, West Africa, but they've also done, like I think you mentioned, like the Cove and Taiji, and there's other actions. And I've kind of, my focus is on the high seas. So I haven't followed a lot of their terrestrial activities, uh, but there's sort of a wide range of activities. So it is. I suppose that's less exciting to film than uh, ramming ships. Well, and, and it makes also, it into documentaries less often. Yeah. Well, they never show you the, the tedious three months of sitting there, you know, cleaning, uh, cleaning floors and, right. uh, you know, taking notes and training. There's always, you know, what is it? The war is, you know, ages of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Uh, so you never quite get to see on whale wars or whatever the, uh, the, the more tedious elements of the, of the campaigns. When you mentioned that they have the largest private navy in the world, I just imagine Elron Hubbard rolling in his grave. <laughs> well, not only that, just to just to build on. So my 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 work at Sea Shepherd was basically I did my thesis on them, was kind of a, a leading expert on them, and then um, I did some consulting with them on their new vessel, the Ocean Warrior. And not only do they have a the largest private navy in the world, but they also have a very nice vessel called the Ocean Warrior, which I helped write the grant for. And it's an 8.3 million euro custom-built patrol vessel that can go very, very fast. And this speaks to, to Ashlyn's question. Um, it can also go around the world in a tank of gas. Like, it's incredibly efficient. We, when we were pitching that uh, for the grant, uh, we, were, we were talking about the ship needs to be environmentally friendly, recognizing the need to, to also you know, not you know, have, a larger foot, have as small a footprint as possible. Um, and it also has a beautiful water cannon that is... Uh, more expensive than my apartment <laughs> and uh, yeah and so and one thing you'll notice if people like search for images of the ocean warrior is they'll see that it, it looks like a military patrol vessel and so you can kind of see what i've been talking about with how the organization has has evolved over the years from say the early days when you have sort of vessels that are painted black with spikes on them uh with pirate actual you know with the jolly roger pirate flag that they have 
to now where you have vessels that have nose no bow numbers and and look like military patrol vessels. Yes, they're still that sort of a bit of a, of a piratey edge. They still have their Jolly Roger, but you're seeing a lot more sort of conventional law enforcement imagery. Um, and I think that's quite fascinating. Now, with, with Sea Spiracy, you had a lot of similar thoughts that I had. I will say that, you know, my colleague Gary was like, we were very excited to, for it to come out because he spent more than a week filming on shark fin conservation in Hong Kong. And I think my overall take was, and I think it's similar to what, what some of the people in the panel were saying, that this is, the documentary covers a lot of issues that, that are affecting our oceans. My main uh, criticism was that I kind of wanted the documentary for each of those issues. Like it doesn't really do the issue of slavery at sea justice. You can't cover that in 15 minutes. It's just not mm. possible. That is that is a three-part miniseries. And, you know, Bluefin Tuna, that is, I mean, I've got full books on that, right? Or or whaling or taiji or industrial fishing or bycatch or illegal, all those things, each of them you could easily cover it in a full episode. So I feel like it provides sort of an introduction, a, a taster to the issues. But I personally would love a deeper dive into any of those issues, just because there's there's so much information that that's out there to learn. Mm -hmm. One of the things, uh, I, I guess, kind of the flashiest claim that Seaspiracy makes, or yeah, no, I would say that they make the claim. They don't just suggest it, but they they're basically saying that there's essentially no sustainable model of corporate fishing, and that instead of like quibbling over whether any particular practice can reasonably be labeled sustainable, we should instead focus on simply reducing or eliminating our fish consumption. So as somebody who has studied fish crime and also the ecological impact of fishing, what, what are your thoughts on that? It's really hard to imagine a form of industrial fishing that's sustainable at all. I don't know if anyone has a chance to Google some of these mega trawlers they have. There's a mega trawler um, and it keeps changing its name, but last time I looked into it, it was called Abel Seaman. I think it's, um, it keeps changing its name, but last time I saw it in Harbor in, uh, in Rotterdam, last time I sailed through there. And it, as a single vessel, had the ability to take, I think all of New Zealand's fishing quota uh, for certain fisheries in a single fishing vessel. I, I, I mean, the numbers, I don't, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head for this one, but like one vessel, hundred more than 100 meters tall along, could take huge amounts of, of fish. And, and in a sense, it's also taking jobs, right? Because those ships have tiny crews compared to a huge fleet. Um, and like, and if you look at, say, the global fishing fleet, uh, you, you have, was it 67... 1,800 fishing vessels over 24 meters, but you have 4.5 million vessels. So the vast majority of vessels are small vessels. The big vessels have huge capacities and they, I think, are the ones that are linked to the most problems. So large vessels can take a lot of fish. They also are quite indiscriminate in their fishing methods. We're not talking about pulling line fishers, pulling in just you know a certain fish. They're, they're pulling in everything. So that's where you get huge amounts of bycatch. And on top of all that, some of them are at sea for months, sometimes years, because their their um, transshipment takes the fish off the vessel and they get rebunkered at sea. And some of these ships will not go to land for years. And then that's where you get the abuse because fishers are stuck on those vessels as, as effectual, effectual slaves um, and they can't leave. And there's been lots of document. The stuff on, on slavery at sea was hope eye-opening for people because it, it, it's very real. And there's been lots of documented cases of people who are stuck at sea for years uh, because they don't actually have the ability to land. And when they do land, the ship can go to close to shore, but their passports are held or they don't speak the language and there's all these barriers. And so the larger vessels are the ones that are really prone to abuse. I'm not suggesting that other vessels don't engage in legal fishing and there's not abuse on board them either. There was a really horrifying article, a report on fishing germal platforms, like fishing platforms in, um, I think it was Indonesia. And they were talking about like children, child slaves on these platforms and like, I won't remember this off the top of my head, but the percentage of fishers who had witnessed a murder was a higher number than you'd think and a higher number than is acceptable. And the acceptable <laughs> number is zero, yeah. uh, but it was much higher. And so you, and, and that's, not, that's because the, sometimes the, the owners, and often it's impossible to identify who they are, will make the calculation that their largest cost is fuel and crew. And if the crew don't come home, they don't pay their wages. And so that's it's a horrifying thought, and it's a cold-hearted, you know, calculus of capitalism that, that that makes that decision. So that I think the industrial fishing is particularly prone to that. Um, 
And you have fishing vessels that can go very far on the high seas, which are poorly regulated. There's lack of enforcement. And so they're even more prone to, to, um, to abuse and to, to breaking the law. I always say that, you know, where governance is low, crime and abuse will flourish. And so that's, I think, the challenge you get with these large industrial fishing vessels. It doesn't mean that smaller vessels aren't also prone to, to engaging in crime. And there's been lots of links with fishing vessels and smuggling drugs and people and abuse and illegal fishing. Um, but those larger vessels are hugely impactful. So I have a question. I know that we can care about more than one thing at once, <laughs> but it is often presented as um, going pescatarian, if you're not going to go totally vegetarian or vegan, is a good choice for the environment. Would you say that it is in fact the other way around, or do you think everyone should just go vegan? I think the best advice is to reduce the amount of meat you eat in general, right? Make it a sometimes food if you must. I think that you run into problems purely advocating one diet. I think folks brought this up on the panel where it's not at all reasonable to suggest that someone living in the North be vegan. That's that's not reasonable at all. Um, or even vegetarian for that matter. Like I mean, we've all seen the pictures of the cost of a head of lettuce in, you know, um, in, in uh, you know, Taktiaktak or wherever. Mm. Um, I think that the critical thing is reducing our meat consumption. And that that's the most important aspect. I, I don't, I personally, I'm vegetarian. I was raised by, you know, hippie artists. Uh, my colleague is vegan. I think the the best approach here is just eat as little meat as possible. And I wouldn't recommend people eat fish. Um, mo most fish, most fisheries are not sustainable. Uh, I mean, out here on the West Coast, you've got some some salmon fisheries that are quite, I think, quite sustainable. Um, and there's some indigenous uh, some smoked salmon operations that I think are quite are quite good. But if you look at most fisheries, the numbers start getting like really eye-opening. So for example, like the percentage of shrimp that come from Bangladesh that at some point in their supply chain was handled by a child slave is I think one in three. So like that, that is, I mean, that's the choice you make for your shrimp cocktail, right? Um, one of the things I mentioned earlier was krill. I'm very passionate about krill conservation. Yes, there's 600 trillion krill. So the issue may not be conservation, but if a huge krill trawler from Ocker Biomarine um, and they actually designed suction uh, vacuum cleaners at the end of their, the caught end of their nets. So they could suck in the krill without having to pull their nets in, which takes them time and money and is dangerous. And they, they claim it to be green. Um, if they pull their full quota of krill from one location, if that location is close to a penguin rookery or a crab eater seal habitat uh, main area, those seals or, or penguins can't eat. So just because they're, they're, they hit their quota and they're technically within the letter of the law, doesn't mean they haven't destroyed an ecosystem because they extirpated the species from that one spot. Why do people fish for krill? Are Good we question. feeding them to like farmed fish? This links into your conversation on farm fish. Yeah. So the okay. krill, <laughs> krill oil over the ground up for fish meal to be used for, for um, fertilizer or right. for fish meal to feed fish in, okay. in fish farms. Yeah. Um, there are some places that you, I think you can get like some krill in Japanese restaurants in some places, but like the 600 krill, the restaurant business is not what's uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not threatening the krill. Um, so yeah, with, with fisheries, I think you'd be hard pressed to find one that's sustainable. And that's the other question which is raised by the, by the film, which I think is really eye-opening, which is we, it's hard to trust the sources that are allegedly validating the fisheries. One of the ones that I always mention is MSC certifies fisheries. They certify them based on sustainability standards. So let's assume that that's the case, that the fishery they certify is sustainable. They don't look at whether the, the fish are caught by slaves. So it might be sustainably caught by people who are not who are being abused horribly on vessels. That's not included often in the calculus. Um, or similarly, the fishery itself might be sustainable, but there's illegal fishing which takes up a third of the fishery itself. Um, at one point in Antarctica, the Patagonian tooth fishery, 90% of the fish that were being caught were caught illegally. Now, fortunately, that number has changed, but you could have a 10% of the fishery being caught in heavy air quotes sustainably. Um, and then the vast majority is being caught illegally. So I, I think it, it's a big responsibility to look into food in that context. And it's a huge challenge. And often you really can't rely on these kinds of certification programs that exist out there because they don't adequately look into the aspects. And, and as I think this pointed out in the film, and as I think folks were mentioning on the panel, they often have a, a, an interest, a vested interest in, in getting certification. So there, there's a lot of problems around sustainability. I think my best advice would be to, to eat eat less meat. We all have to anyways. I mean, for the carbon footprint of meat alone, you know, mm -hmm. regardless of the impact on, on ecosystems um, or water. I know you folks are you know, on the prairies. I'm from Alberta. And, you know, a really good reason to be vegetarian in Alberta was water conservation, because by the time the water from some of the rivers reaches the ocean, there's not much left, right? 
So there's a lot of reasons to eat less meat. And I think ultimately a good form of communication is, is around minimizing meat, meat minimizing, as opposed to just like abolishing it from people's diets. Because A, that's a really hard sell. Again, I came from Alberta and telling people they'd never get to enjoy bacon or occasionally a steak is, is hard to sell people on as opposed to saying maybe eat a bit less and, you know, it'll be cheaper in your pocket, good for your health and uh, better for the environment. It's a harm reduction model that works in a lot of different circumstances. Well put, yes. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, that's worth noting when it comes to research in these areas, and I know that you know, it's challenging to get accurate numbers, it's particularly challenging to get accurate numbers when we're talking about illegal fishing. Uh, because it's 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 illicit, it's it's it's, not, it's covert, right? So all you ever get are estimates, and this is one of the big challenges, and why we really need to work on enforcement, better laws, better enforcement, better monitoring, because you know all we have are rough estimates of how much fish is being fished illegally, and we're talking you know uh, billions of dollars worth of fish and millions of metric tons, uh, but it's really tough to to make these estimates. There, there was a study that just came out um, from uh, Sumela et al. like 2020. And they, they found that you know they're estimating nine to seventeen billion dollars in revenue for illegal fishing globally, uh, but that's like you know a it's pretty hard to discern and b like we're talking huge losses not just the the cost of that fishery but the cost of illegal fishing also impacts legal fishers because now their their capacity is reduced the ecosystems are destroyed so their fish are, are destroyed um, I think we were talking you guys were talking a bit earlier about illegal fi- uh, fishing nets and plastic who is most likely to dump the net. The person who's most likely to dump a net is an illegal fisher who's not legally allowed to use that net. So if you know if you are going into port, yes, you're going to dump your your old broken nets so you don't have to pay to dispose of them unless there's a free disposal on, on the key side. But you may also dump your net because you're not supposed to be using your net because it's right. illegal. And so illegal fishers um, drop a lot of fishing gear. And I was doing a project in the or trying to do a project in the Gulf of Carpentaria, the, the saddle part of the top of Australia, a few years back. And there's a group called Ghost Nets Australia, and I encourage people to check them out. They do great work. And they, they, they work with off-season fishers to pull in these nets. And the, the, the challenge with nets, and I think the questions around like what percentage they are in the ocean is, is irrelevant to the impact they have on wildlife. Because you've got like a monofilament net, um, and it's designed as a killing device, capture device for fisheries. It becomes lost, and typically a net will fish at like 20% capacity, which is still a lot of fishing. And it will do so for years. And you get what's called a yo-yo effect. So the net will slowly accumulate wildlife, and it slowly balls up. It sinks to the bottom of the ocean, where those uh, bits of dead animal are decomposed by decomposers, and the net opens up again and continues to fish. And it continues to, in this process, ad infinitum, until it's slowly torn apart by wave action or washes up on the beach. And so this group in, in Australia is basically pulling these nets in, and they come. a lot of them come down from Indonesia, where they're from illegal fishing operations, and they pull them up on the beach to burn them. And they found everything from crocodiles to turtles to, to you know, cetacean skeletons in those nets. And so often, you know, when we, we shouldn't get lost in, in, in conversations around exact percentages, because it's different in different parts of the ocean, and you get these weird concentrations due to currents. I'm really need to look at, make, you know, well, not just stopping the flow of plastic into our oceans. Um, I agree with that, but I also think that in the documentary, he was hammering that person about, it is over 50%, why won't you agree with me? Like, that was the part we had a problem with. He was being an asshole about his incorrect number. Yeah, and I think the the number that he was, I think he was looking at the number for one specific region, right? Right, or or it was old data or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that, that, that was, you know, that's just the garbage patch in the Pacific there's a broader issue. I mean, the interview style, it was, it wasn't, uh, you know, Louis Thoreau where he's just sitting there smiling, smugly and asking a question uh, or not smiling, but just sort of staring the person down. It was a different interview style. Um, and, and I think one of the things that we often, with the oceans, the challenge that you run in with a documentary like this is there isn't one solution. People are looking for one solution. So the solution of eating less fish isn't the only solution, right? You know, it, we have to reduce plastic pollution in the oceans. Well, is that your own personal choice or you talk to city council about banning single-use plastic or do you talk to your suppliers for your business to package less? There's, there's, there's not one solution to plastic pollution, right? You could spend your whole life looking at improving waste management systems to ensure that waste doesn't enter the ocean once it's been discarded. You could spend your entire life studying human behavior to design better garbage cans to ensure that people are disposing of their trash properly. You, uh, something that Disney's been doing a lot in their theme parks, designing you know garbage cans at the perfect distance so they can maximize people's usage. Um, or you could work on making products that are plastic free. 
So there, there's that's one solution. And then there's other aspects. I know there was some right. talk. And I know that that's part of the problem that we had with the documentary was that it suggested that there was one solution hmm. and did not and like dismissed all of the other options like, oh, doing anything about plastic isn't going to solve anything kind of hmm. thing. Right. And of course, didn't said basically, oh, climate change isn't the problem. <laughs> well, and that's I mean, that one's a bit alarming, too. It's one of those aspects where I think, um, yeah, you should care about lots of different issues. And one of the approaches I like to take is some of these issues like climate change, ocean acidification, marine plastic pollution, illegal fishing, overfishing, they're all really big issues. And it's hard for an individual or even a small organization or even a large organization to effectively tackle them. So what I find is most effective is to break them down into smaller pieces and tackle a small piece that's manageable. So to return to our original conversation about you know the work I do with uh, contraception, right? We need to smash the patriarchy. But like, where do you start, right? right? Like, it's a huge area. So we're going to start with a one small policy that pays for itself, that helps people, improves health outcomes, increases equality, that we definitely can sell. And if you don't support it, there's no reason not to support it. And I will look into your motivations, right? <laughs> and so, like, for marine conservation, this is kind of why I've been focusing my work on sea cucumbers, right? The same criminal networks that are transporting sea cucumbers are also transporting other wildlife products, terrestrial, marine. They're also transporting drugs and guns and people. But those are hard to, to, to deal with. Like, I don't really feel like tussling with organized crime syndicates smuggling guns into Myanmar. Thank you very much. Um, so you can look at uh, something that's adjacent, like sea cucumbers, have a huge impact on an industry and, and make the world a better place, as it were, um, in, in a manageable way. Because um, otherwise you get sort of what uh, Michelle Isaac called ecological grief or, you know, these being overwhelmed by so many things that you, you can't possibly deal with them or trying to fight, you know, tilting at windmills like I'm going to fight and solve climate change. That's a really big goal. But if your goal is to say one of the things I'm working on here in Saanich, improving road safety, improving road safety is going to encourage people to use active transportation, which is going to reduce their carbon footprints. They're going to get healthier. They're going to be happier. It's a win. That's a solution to climate change that I can effectuate here in my own hometown without having to try to figure out, you know, international climate change negotiations and agreements and which benchmark do we use. And it's something that's manageable, but it will also have a tangible impact on the world. So I think if I was going to do one takeaway, because I realized we could probably talk all night, but at a certain point we'll, we'll have to. <laughs> I would say that, you know, folks should try to find something they're passionate about that and then break it down to small manageable chunks and, and start working their way on the along those issues and do good research to inspire that work so get to know your issue really well and then use that research to come up with a good strategy and then follow through on that strategy and the lesson i've really learned over the last few years of doing a lot of like local canadian activism is you have to have some patience unfortunately um you know we've been pushing for free contraception in bc for four years the policy itself would save the provincial government 90 million dollars a year and yet it's still taking us four years and we haven't quite finished yet. And I've had moments in the campaign where it's like, why hasn't this happened already? It's a great policy. You have to work through the system in that case and, and really you know, slog, put your head down and slog, similar to the prayer content that we were looking at, right? You've got to find, uh, you know, start with something like some research and then use that to make a little bit of change in policy and procedure and then use that to try to make the world a slightly more secular place, to try to reinforce the separation of religion and government and it starts with research, it starts with good ideas, people working together and, and breaking bigger issues down to smaller manageable chunks that we can all deal with as a small teams and with our friends. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that, don't reinvent the wheel. Mm. Find oh, what other people have done. <laughs> Absolutely. And also actually just to build on that too, don't reach for strategies just because it's the thing you did last time. Pick a strategy that's going to maximize your chances of success. And this kind of speaks to sort of the questions around Sea Shepherd and my fascination with like people doing interesting things in the high seas. I like a group to, that uses to use the best strategy to achieve the outcome it wants. And sometimes that strategy might be a bit more aggressive. Sometimes it won't be. But we should always reach for the strategy that's going to maximize our chance of success. Um, now, sometimes we have to decide if we want long-term or short-term success. But as someone who studies like political strategy of social movements, I think it's really important that we don't say, oh, well, last time we did a petition, so we're doing a petition again this time. No, no, look at the situation, evaluate what we call the political opportunity structure, see how all the pieces lie on the playing field, and then pick your strategy that's gonna help you win in that situation. Um, and that's, that's, I think, hopefully the best advice I could pass along to folks. <laughs> Wonderful, well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, Steele. 
Thanks for letting me talk your ear off about a wide range of subjects. Like I have some concerns that I felt like there was some places where I should push back, but I didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And you did it really well on on the stuff at the end there. You were mm, going all yeah. Oprah investigative journalism on. <laughs> I'm thinking more about like we turned this into a great extra governmental military, and I'm like, but is that good? <laughs> is that yeah. a good thing that we did? <laughs> I, 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 I'm not. I'm not prone to trusting a governmental military either. So no, like, for I, I sure, right? Yeah. Like neither of those things is good. No, I've got yeah. a real issue with uh, law and order and carceral justice these days. Mm-hmm. So well, mm-hmm. as do all of us, but it's been something I've been spending some time looking at. I didn't quite get to asking him, like, how do you feel about your life that you ended up doing crimes against sea cucumbers as your career? (laughs) (laughs) How many decisions led to sea cucumber crime expert? (laughs) And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. Like, that's like a children's book career. Amazing. Yeah. Now we're going to move on to something nice. something nice is that we just celebrated our anniversary we have been married for four years as of july 1st and uh with all of the things going on in canada right now uh and the movement to cancel canada day we are supportive of that but also would just like to celebrate our anniversary thanks (laughs) We decided to get married on Canada Day uh, just so that we would have the day off forever. Uh, And because the day has never meant anything to us, we felt fine just, uh, you know, kind of superseding it with our own holiday. But now it feels a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) But we had a really nice day of takeout and watching silly things and staying out of the heat mostly. That's lovely. Very nice. Happy anniversary again. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry if I stole yours, Lauren. I hadn't thought of one anyway, so. <laughs> you, it hadn't it, occurred to Lauren to be happy about celebrating their anniversary. No. <laughs> I thought about it, but I figured Ashlyn would take that one. My something nice has been that I have been able to cycle to work a lot lately for various generally childcare related reasons. I generally have to drive and uh, maybe get one day a week on the days that I don't usually have the car. But because of the upside down world that we've been living in and changes to our family life and that, I actually can ride my bike to work more often because uh, people are home. So I've really been enjoying that. I was able to ride three times last week. And so that is really, really nice because I enjoy riding my bike and it's especially nice when I can work it into my day. So it doesn't, uh, I don't have to carve out extra time. And fun upside, I've been dealing with sciatica for the last almost three weeks and that's been really painful. But oddly enough, when I cycle a lot, it feels better. So yeah, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about that. Nice physical therapy that you actually want to do. (laughs) Jem, what's your something nice? My something nice is having some time to tinker with computers again. Over the last couple days, I uh, ordered a bunch of parts, both for uh, my uh, my headless Linux server and for my desktop, and did some, you know, like I replaced an operating system drive, did some cloning and partition management, had to move a Windows recovery partition, which is always a pain. Then on my server, I replaced... A main board and the CPU and some RAM and added some new cooling and uh, plugged in a couple of extra four terabyte drives. Is this the PC of Theseus? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, they they all are. You know, I, I haven't bought an off the shelf computer. Well, I guess with the exception of like a work laptop, I haven't bought an off the shelf computer in um, decades. <laughs> and I, I love tinkering uh, and I found it especially pleasant uh, and a nice change to have to replace so many primary components in my Linux box and find that everything just worked fine because Linux is not trying to like make sure that you haven't sneakily moved the operating system onto a different computer um, (laughs) and registering all of, you know, the way Windows or um, presumably Mac OS uh, would do. 
swapping components out of a Mac is is always going to be a dicey proposition anyway. But yeah, everything just worked and expanding my RAID array with a couple of four terabyte drives with ZFS was trivial. Uh, and it's always nice when things work. I'm prepared to troubleshoot when problems arise. I always make copious pages of notes uh, whenever I'm troubleshooting a problem so that when it, uh, when it arises again, I'm not digging through decades-old forum posts, um, mm, yeah. uh, which is the way it used to go. <laughs> it was relatively painless and it, sort of a fun project over a couple of days, and uh, everything is uh, ship-shape again. Awesome. Excellent. I've also had some time lately to do some writing just for the kids. Huxley's always asking me to tell a story when we're walking to the park or whatever. And so I've just been making up stories about a little goblin named Gerard the Goblin. And the kids wanted a book of the stories. So I just sort of typed it all up uh, and I made like a little, a little children's book. And that's been, that's been very nice to, to do. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. I love it. <laughs> Very cool. How about you, Lauren? My something nice is a project that Ashlyn is spearheading. Uh, I think we've talked about it before. We're turning our front yard into an orchard. Mm-hmm. Lovely. And I mean, it's not a lot of space, but you don't need a lot of space. We're using the five by five method. And that's not like a military or anything. It's just five feet by five feet. And our first step was to uh, cover the front yard in topsoil and then make a greenhouse effect. So we have a plastic lawn right now. <laughs> and I apologize for the cat howling in the background. I have to go fill her bowl after this. So, <laughs> so right now we have a plastic front lawn. And I can hear people walking by and trying to decipher what it's for. And that's really funny as well. But I'm looking <laughs> forward to next year when we can plant our trees and then our ground cover of other berries and everything. And mm -hmm. Hopefully it's going to be really nice. We're going to have so much fruit. That's awesome. I, I love that idea. We're not turning our front yard into an orchard, but I love that you all are. I think that's <laughs> super cool. And as I replace plants in my yard, I generally have a rule of it must be edible if it's coming into my yard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, except for grass. Hopefully, in five years or so, it'll be good that you don't have an orchard because we can offload fruit onto you. <laughs> I yeah. will take your fruit. <laughs> I will. I will be delighted to make pie after pie after pie. Yep. You know that there are other uses for fruit. Nonsense. <laughs> no. Okay. I, I can. Well, make, there's crumbs. Make, uh, jams and crumbles. Yes, crumble, thank you, yeah. Lauren. <laughs> crumbles. There's crumbles. There's brown betties. There's streusels. Uh, I, I am almost done my uh, my cranberry orange marmalade, so I'll have to make another batch. That's a we weird thing. Yeah, we are growing neither cranberries nor oranges, so. And we will be growing cranberries, so. Ooh. Yeah, that's exciting. You put mm -hmm. in a bog. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. these are like high bush, high bush or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I assume they you were not having a bog. <laughs> I'm just going to, yeah, in front of our house, let's put a little moat. Yeah. <laughs> It'll go perfectly with the lemonade stand. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds, that is a lovely something nice. And it's, it's fun to see things take shape and actually happening. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we've been talking about it for years now. And to finally, like, do something about it feels really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And the person that we are taking the advice from, uh, the book that we're reading, and we went, took some online classes that he was offering over the winter, is the person who put in the uh, public uh, fruit garden at the Forks. Oh, nice. So that's the 5x5 five five method there if you're interested. And if folks are in Winnipeg and want to go walk through the Forks, that's sort of what we'll be doing to our front yard on a much smaller scale. <laughs> I think it's also called a fruit guild method if you like Google it online. Okay. The, the principle is you only need five by five feet of any sort of lawn or green space to make a whole edible ecosystem. That's Interesting. Really cool. That that is that sounds really cool. I'm I'm getting tempted, but we <laughs> yeah. we do still have two young kids that like to run, so yeah. having a, a lawn is nice right now. We're leaving our backyard as lawn right now. I would like to replace it with um you know indigenous grasslands to the area and not like K Kentucky bluegrass that we have to cut. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we've tried overseeding with uh, creeping thyme and clover, and mm -hmm. they both have like little patches of things that are trying to outcompete the grass, but they're not very mm. good at it. 
That's very interesting. Like my parents, so my parents live outside the city and they have a, a an acreage out there and um, it's very old property, very lovely. But I would say at least 60 to 70% of it is now like that clover. It can take over. Yeah. I don't know if my dad likes that or not. I'm sure it does cut down the mowing time. You know, fingers crossed, maybe you can get something. <laughs> Hopefully. I would like more of a natural look to the uh, to the grassland. <laughs> not that our yard is a grassland. It's mostly garden boxes back there. Yeah. But, <laughs> I just uh, want to have somewhere we can still have people over to sit around a fire. Yes. Eventually. Any mention of Kentucky bluegrass always makes me think of the Anthropocene Reviewed, the podcast and now book by John Green. He has a review of Kentucky bluegrass, and uh, I think it is, like a, like a lot of things in that book, it is thoughtful and touching uh, and uh, worth a read or listen. So check out the Anthropocene Reviewed if you're interested. Very cool. So, uh, Laura, what are we going to talk about next month? Well... I thought it's about time for me to host an episode because it's been a little while. And recently, some of the, uh, what shall we call them, dubious diagnoses that uh, enter the nutrition sphere have popped up in my life and practice again. And so that got me thinking that, hey, we haven't talked about these kinds of things for a while. So we're going to talk about some conditions that are frequently diagnosed, but maybe slash probably are not actual things and what we know about them. So I think that should be fun to get into some of this pseudoscience. And it'll be I think it'll be really fun to dissect where all of these things start to diverge from their kernel of truth. Awesome. Cool. Can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, folks. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. This was an easy one. <laughs> Good, night. Good, night, Good night. Good night. Life, the universe, and everything else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. I always say good night. It's not night. Right. Like we always say good night. <laughs> it's 11 a.m. It's usually 11 p.m. when we finish this at the yeah, best. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're just, we're just, we're staying within universe here. Yeah. Have a great morning, everyone <laughs> listening to this on your morning commute. I, when I was, um, when I was working food service or whatever, I would never end my day before 11 p.m. And so I just got in the habit of saying good night as a way of saying goodbye. <laughs> and that is stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a real hard time uh, if I'm hanging up the phone like to say have a good afternoon or have a good morning because mm-hmm. I worked at Ipsos for so long doing surveys it was always have a good night whenever I was hanging up the phone <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> oh man I'm really looking forward to seeing you all in person again yeah. that is going to be so good <laughs> hmm Laura and I actually, this isn't our something nice, but Laura and I actually just played a new dice drafting game that I had kickstarted that I think maybe one of you folks had. Oh, was it that mountain one? Dice Miner, yeah. Yeah, I saw that and I thought you would love it. You know, we played two rounds and I think it's very fun. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. And it's quick, which is nice. So you can you can play lots or a little. Yep. I like when my friends kickstart games I want so that I can still play them. <laughs> Ashlyn, was that Lexa howling in the background? Yes, it is. Okay. She's very sad. <laughs> we haven't been able to get her to stop all morning, so apologies if that comes through. Oh. That's okay. Our kids might end up howling in the background, so. Mm-hmm. Dr. Teal Phelps Balderoff is actually the research coordinator for Oceans Asia. It's the direct. Oh shit! What is his title? Um, no, he is the director of research. It's okay. 
director of research at the BC Humanists, but uh, I have other roles. I'm the director of research, for, oh, sorry, the research coordinator for the BC Humanists. There, I can barely know my title. Yeah, and uh, happy to jump into that. So I've got my uh, my seaspiracy notes off to the side here. So we'll do a hard pivot from prayer to <laughs> sort of marine things. I, I I don't know if there's a certainly a we can come up with a natural segue between those right. two subjects. The challenge to you folks as hosts is like to they've been banned from uh, talking to some legislatures. They? I think oh, uh, mostly Japan and the International Whaling Commission as them listed as a not so good group right um which is interesting because i just my colleague and i just presented a paper to the small whale committee at the international whaling commission on porpoise conservation in hong kong and uh this is this is kind of funny but they yeah they they were fine with him going and he was the director of sea shepherd for nine years in asia and they weren't happy with me going because apparently i was too much of an activist so uh -huh. my, uh, my atheist activism was going to anger the the whaling folk <laughs> but, um you know, i think maybe, maybe the only transition i can think of is a monkfish perhaps but i'll, I'll leave that up to you <laughs> <laughs> So stay tuned for that next week, next month. Stay tuned for that next month. We don't do this weekly. Thank God for that. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> God, that was a bad experiment. I think that was my idea. Oh, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I know. I specifically remember you saying, well, we're doing this every two weeks, but, you know, maybe once once a week, we could just do a little news update. <laughs> yep. That was a bad idea. And everyone should have shut it down. And you regretted it immediately, darling. Yeah, basically. Well, you learn from your mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else go next. Hi, Lexa. <laughs> Does Lexa have a something nice? No, everything is horrible. <laughs> I know. Poor cat. I'm off my game. It's okay. You don't have pages of notes in front of you. Yeah, you don't know what know. to do. I, I see you looking at the screen going, where are the words to say? <laughs> nice physical therapy that you actually want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Lexa does not approve of my cycling habit. <laughs> She's just standing outside the door yelling at me. <laughs> I just want to have somewhere we can still have people over to sit around a fire. Yes. Eventually. Lexa's not on board. Lexa is never on board with people coming over. She's enjoyed this last year and a half. I think everything goes with cocktail in my brain right now. <laughs> Fish crime.